0: Welcome back to our walk in Christ. So today, I actually want to spend some time talking about contradictions um, in the scriptures and things, uh, because there, you know, there's there's one guy, and, and this is this is for you. I think you know who you are, uh, who's always sending me things like, um, you know, how do you delineate this contradiction? And and the last one he said is is you know, why is it in in Second uh, Samuel it says that 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 God stirred David's heart? And in Chronicles, it said, Satan stirred David's heart. And, you know, it's God and Satan, the same thing, and all this kind of stuff. And I address that comment directly, um, but I want to talk about that in, in a broader sense. Because there are some things in, in the scriptures which, um, which can actually, they seem on the surface to look like contradictions. But in reality, they're not. Now, in that particular one, there's a lot of different things at play. Um, the first is... God is still testing Israel on their faithfulness, which is something Israel fights with a lot. They are battling their faithfulness all the time. The second is the, book, uh, the, the books of Samuel and the books of Chronicles were written for completely different purposes in completely different time frames. In, in Samuel it was a chronology the history of the kings at the time they were being written versus Chronicles was written by prophets much later after the exile to show why the Israelites were sent into exile so we have to keep that in mind that, that these are books that they have a deep degree of consistency even though they were written so far apart and that's part of the unity of scripture so let's deal with that one real quick um, in, in, the, in the second Samuel uh, section it says that God stirred, uh, God stirred against Israel and, and he made David to, to take a census. Now this was a, a, an element of pride because the previous king, Saul, was a deeply prideful man. He started extremely humble and then he saw as he was king, he saw the pride coming back. It's like, I am the king, I am proud, I am who I am and that's all there is. And he ended up falling to pride, which was the same sin as Satan. Okay, and then in the light of all of that, uh, in light of all of that, then uh, the second chronicle or the, the first chronicles verse it says that, that Satan stirred against David and tempted him. So, what you have to understand to see that these are consistent with one another is go back and look in the book of Job, where we see. This cosmic spiritual interplay between God and Satan, and Job happens to be the target. Satan's like, I'm just looking for someone to tempt God because, you know, I'm perfect in all I do. And God's like, have you looked at my servant Job? Well, Job was a righteous man, and God says Job is a righteous man to him. He says, well, of course he's righteous. You put a hedge around him. You're protecting him. So God says, fine, take what he has. But you can't touch him. So he takes everything, and Job still is praising God. Okay? And... Then it goes on and, and Satan comes back again and says, well, yeah, but you didn't let me hurt him. He says, fine, you can hurt him, just don't kill him. And then what goes on is this entire thing and the whole book of Job was a lot of deep philosophy at the time, a lot of questioning why bad things happen. But the reality is in that case is bad things happen because there's a spiritual cosmic play going on around him. And God knew what the ending was, but what that was was a temptation. Well, the same exact thing happened with David in the the case of Job. He tended to generally hold fast to his faith in God, but David fell into sin. And that's the same kind of interplay that's going on. And that's why it's God and Satan at the same time, because Satan is not allowed or permitted to do anything that God doesn't allow. And so you have this type of interplay. Now, if you take it exactly as the English translation you're doing, it looks like a contradiction. But to understand the whole of Scripture as a, as a total, there's no contradiction at all. Okay, You can come into this, a lot of the same arguments if you look at the Gospels very closely. You'll see a lot of things that seem to disagree with one another here and there on very small, minor issues. And, and the best way I can elucidate that is to, to suggest that We as people, as we are witnesses to things, and the gospel accounts are eyewitness accounts. That's what they are. They're testimonies. They're like the sworn affidavits. This is what I saw happen. Well, two people can be standing on the same sidewalk right next to each other, witness a car accident ahead of them, and have two completely different accounts of what happened. And I remember the best example of this I've ever heard is I did a psychology of communications class in undergrad, and... uh, the professor, he he, uh, he had this knack for doing these weird, crazy experiments with us to, to test uh, what our level of communication might be in a lot of things. Now, he did not actually pull this trick on us, but he told us about it. In a previous year, he had his grad student go in there and start doing, you know, grad student-y things, you know, teaching the class, whatever, and then he comes in and he stages this this thing where he comes in and he starts swearing at the poor grad student and she she's, leaves the room crying and he looks up. He realizes this whole class is there. And he says, all right, guys, this is probably going to start an investigation. Uh, everybody pull out a piece of paper. I want you to write down everything that you saw. So he collected 30 eyewitness accounts from the students, and wouldn't you know it, not a single one of them completely agreed 100%, although the general truths were all about the same. You had some students that hated the guy, you know, I don't think crazy radical feminism was a huge thing at that time, but he was a he was a male chauvinistic man, and he, this grad student was this poor little girl, and so you know if there were any r- feminists in the room, they would have completely sided with a woman. This guy's just a misogynist; he's a jerk, blah blah blah. blah. And then people who who liked really liked the guy, they're getting A. Maybe they were he was their advisor. He they'd give a much more favorable account. So taken as a whole, you can look at all these testimony accounts and go, yeah. Okay, we can kind of piece together what's happening here. We can piece it together. But the reality is, if two things are 100% consistent across the board, you know fraud's going on. And that's what you don't find in the Gospels or in the Bible. So there are places that look as though there are contradictions in the Scripture. And they're not contradictions. But you need to understand it, because this is a challenge that I talk about a lot. We are in this one-verse culture. We want to look at one verse. okay? Even if you flip through Proverbs, you will find one proverb that says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly. And then just a couple verses later, it says, Answer a fool according to his folly. Well, if you're taking one-verse culture, one-verse scripture, one-verse everything, you're going to look at this one verse. In fact, another one is is... In one verse, it's like, beat your swords into plowshares. The other one says, you know, take your plowshares and beat them into swords. <laughs> okay? And so, there's a lot of these little things. If you take one verse or one context without understanding the whole of Scripture, the whole of what's going on, the whole understanding, you will completely miss the point and see a contradiction where there is not one. And that's the danger, what we have in American Christianity particularly, and I'd probably say Western Christianity as, as, as a whole, is that we do not disciple people. We get so caught up in numbers. How many people raise their hands? How many people... "Ah!" But we're not stopping and taking these people and saying, welcome to the family. Now let's understand the faith. Can you imagine what happens if you did that to your kids in their life? They're born into this world and you don't take the time to teach them potty training. You don't teach the time to train them how to eat. You don't teach the time to teach them how to... You basically take the kid, you give him the basic foods, you you let him eat whatever he wants to eat on his own desire, you let him do what he wants to do on his own desire, you don't give him any direction, you don't give him any guidance. Don't you have? I'll tell you exactly what you have. Because I used to live next door to some people very much like that. You get a kid, and I know a kid who's only a couple years younger than I am. He was a neighbor of mine growing up. He's been in and out of rehab multiple times. He was getting drunk by the time he was 12. He's got kids out of wedlock. He's following his own life and his own path. And when we have this problem in this church where we're not training and we're not teaching and we're not discipling, we're not understanding who God is. We're not understanding the whole of this new Christian faith. We are failing to count the cost. And that's exactly what Jesus told us to do, is to count the cost. So if if you find yourself in that situation and you're not getting fed and you're not understanding, go back and watch my series on foundations of the Christian faith, we are almost done with the first book. There's four books in the series, and it is fabulous amounts of Bible study. So you can jump over there, um, watch them online on the on my channel, and you can get a lot of deep insights about God that you may or may not be getting other places. But the point is, you don't want to be caught into this one verse culture because a one verse culture is going to injure us, and that's what it does. It injures us.